Hello, and welcome back to Wicked Wednesdays. This is episode eight. It is Wednesday, July 17th, 2020. Took last week off. I don't know if this will be an every Wednesday podcast. Um, I'm very busy, believe it or not. And I do enjoy this project quite a bit, but this is really a for pleasure project. I don't make any money on this, which is fine. Not everything in my life has to be monetized. Um, when you're in the porn industry and you monetize your sex life, that has very interesting effects on how you relate to your partners, how you relate to sex in general. Not always good effects. So I would advise anybody out there that is thinking about this as a profession or is doing this as a profession as we are, do try to make sure that you have some separate time, that you break out time specifically to not have the cameras rolling to not always be trying to monetize and always be getting that shot. It's very difficult for me sometimes. Um, I have a very busy personal life and that can make it difficult to always be available and interested um, to do both work and also you know, maintain relationships. So yeah, we'll talk about that kind of work-life balance sometime. In Wicked Ways News. It has been a frustrating week, and here's why. Last month was one of our best months ever. We had two videos featured that were very successful, um, got tons of positive commentary, tons of good reviews, millions of views, and then our buddies at Pornhub pulled them down again. And yesterday, when I went on the site, there was a message waiting for me, and I quote, Through our periodic process of reviewing and updating our compliance requirements, we have come across content on our network that may no longer be permitted. As a result, some videos have been temporarily disabled or demonetized, pending a review. We are working diligently to review and restore all compliant content. Furthermore, we are committed to working with you to bring any remaining content into compliance, which could be as simple as editing a title or a description. We are extremely grateful for your patience and understanding on this matter. That is not good news for us. So, the kind of content that they're pulling is non-mainstream, non-vanilla more kinky, more BDSM, more rough stuff. And I kind of understand that and I kind of don't. So let's look at it from Pornhub's perspective. From Pornhub's perspective, the BDSM and kink side of their business, I would assume, is much smaller than the vanilla side, right? The unobjectionable stuff is easy for them to market it's easy for them to not have to worry about consent issues, etc. The vanilla stuff, you know, is much easier for them and it probably represents a much larger proportion of their market share. And then you have the trouble child, you have the kink community and the hard BDSM community. And there's, you know, other stuff that we don't represent personally, but more niche subgenres of porn. Those don't get as much market share. They're more difficult to advertise. Not all advertisers want to be seen alongside the rough videos. I understand that. Um, but there still is a significant market out there, right? The fact that we had over 140 million views means that there is a considerable number of people who are interested in what we produce. So popped up on the site and we were missing 30 million views <laughs> just gone and you know went and checked our videos and the ones that i had expected you know bunny's most recent rough anal video um another ruby video i think a kacha video as well all taken down the most popular ones of course so it's very clear to me that this is not about keeping people safe. And that is one of the more galling and frustrating aspects of this. Because, you know, I could get behind the argument 100% if they were saying, 
you know, we're trying to protect people. If we find content on our site that seems like it might be non-consensual, we want to pull that down and we want to, you know, protect those people. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is they're protecting themselves and they're pulling it down because their payment processors, their advertisers, probably governmental agencies are putting pressure on them to not host this content. That doesn't mean that they're reaching out to the people who they're concerned about because we've received nothing. You know, they pulled down three at least of our videos and at no point has someone from Pornhub reached out to me and said, hey, um, we pulled your video down because it's really rough and it seems like it might be non-consensual. We need to talk to this model and make sure that she's okay. We need to have her contact us and make sure that she's okay. We need you to re-verify or do a video with her or something to prove that she's okay. No, Pornhub is taking it down to protect themselves, but they're doing nothing whatsoever to protect the model. They didn't reach out. They didn't send a notice. I wouldn't even have been notified if I didn't look at our site and realize that we were missing so many views. So yeah, that's really frustrating. Um, we work very hard to be compliant with their terms of service. And one of the things that's very frustrating to me and ironic is that the bunny video they took down was the first video that we had put up that had a big red disclaimer warning at the beginning, warning people, Hey, you know, this is rough content, but it's consensual. And at the end of that video, we had an interview with Bunny and I in the scene where we said, hey, you know, everything's cool. I know this was a rough scene. She's fine. Don't worry about it. Because we knew it was a rough scene and we wanted to make sure that people understood it was consensual, that it was a scene, that we were making something for entertainment purposes, not videotaping a crime scene. And that got taken down because I'm sure... I haven't heard from Pornhub yet, but I am sure that it was taken down because it has the non-consensual elements to it, even though the model is clearly consenting in the scene. So this is all the more galling for me specifically because Pornhub recently has updated a lot of their kind of frequently asked questions about violence and pornography, et cetera, underage content, et cetera. And they have a new, very shiny new page. And if you click the trust and safety link, it says we encourage all user generated content that adheres to our terms of service and foremost respects and reflects our core values. Their core values are consent, freedom of sexual expression, authenticity, originality, and diversity. Yeah. We worked very hard to prove consent on those. We worked very hard to show that what we were doing was consensual. As for freedom of sexual expression, they're saying, hey, you know, the stuff that you guys do is not allowed. We don't like that, even though it's not against our, our terms. For example, they have a violent content policy. I'm going to post this stuff. Um, I'm going to post links to all this stuff underneath this video. I do want you to go check it out and look at it. But what they truly... There's nothing that we do as a studio that violates these terms. In fact, we worked very hard to maintain compliance with these terms, and yet our stuff's getting pulled down. And I get it. You know, as far as Pornhub's concerned, better safe than sorry, right? Why bother? You know, they're a billion-dollar business. They don't need us, and I get that. But it puts us in a very difficult position because, as I've shown before, we can't just go make vanilla content and we'll be fine because we won't. Our vanilla content doesn't get views. Our vanilla content doesn't make the front page. Our vanilla content doesn't sell. People aren't interested in it because there is so much market saturation of vanilla content that, you know, our little studio cannot compete. But in this niche market where we have made a niche for ourselves, we're very popular and we do have good success. And so, you know, I truly don't know. I would say, and this is very important to my, my kind of core loyal fans out there, our loyal fans out there, 
be sure to follow us on our alternate social media sites, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Because, you know, if our site gets shut down overall, you know, if, if Pornhub pulls Wicked Ways Studios from Pornhub, which they could very well do, we work very hard not to be in violation of their terms. But every time they pull down one of our videos that has been up for months and has millions of views, they send us a letter saying repeated violations of this policy will result in the suspension of your account. So we have, you know, a hundred and some videos up right now. They could clearly say, okay, retroactively, you know, you have violated our policy. We're pulling your site, et cetera. Or that could happen in the future. If that does happen, you know, and you still want to follow our content and what we make, give us a follow on these other social media platforms so that I can reach out to you if our site gets taken down. You know, I don't care about subscribers on Instagram or Twitter. I'm not, that's not why this message is here, truly. Um, if we have to shift platforms, if we have to take our stuff and go somewhere else, I would like you guys to know where we are. So do, you know, subscribe to us, like our content on other social media platforms so that you can get updated if and when we get shut down. Because I think that's not, um, I think it's entirely possible that that could happen. It's affected what we've uploaded. It's affected the videos I'm making now. I have stuff that I certainly can't upload as is. I would have to go back and perhaps reshoot with the model, you know, like, in the same situation, in the same room, in the same scene, so that she can make it clear to camera in the moment that is consensual. You know, we're gonna start putting little blurbs before our videos. We're gonna start doing whatever we can to be in compliance because we are not, you know, we're not trying to push the edges of what we can get away with. That's never been the point. We've been trying to put out authentic, real, you know, content that people enjoy that share the same kink that we do. And I assure you that the models I film with are into it. There's absolutely no coercion. It's just not how we work. If I'm, I think I should do an interview with every single one of my models and just have them talk about why they do this, why they get off on it, why it's their kink. That might help. Maybe we can point to that in our videos and be like, if you don't understand this, go check out this and understand that these models are into it. I'm not making them do this. I'm not forcing them to do this. I'm not bribing them to do this. You know, we don't work on an upfront basis, right? When I work with a model, they get paid out of the profits of their video, but they don't receive anything upfront. So it's not like I said, here's a thousand dollars to do something you wouldn't normally do, you know, like cash cab and places like that where they they truly are clearly coercing the model in fact that's some part of the kink you know oh you don't want to do that well here's five hundred dollars now will you do it you know we don't make content like that and my models don't work on that basis they do it because they enjoy it and if they end up making a video that makes money great but they would do it anyway we have this kind of sex off camera so it is very frustrating and difficult for me for Pornhub to be singling us out, not just us. I, I have heard from other people that are getting their content taken down as well. And, you know, maybe Pornhub needs some kind of category, you know, a special section where it says, you know, when you enter this part of our site, understand that this is rough content. This is not everyday vanilla chill sex content this is rough pornography this is all the stuff that's not mainstream vanilla sex is over here and if they have to ghettoize us like that to protect themselves you know you have to click through a disclaimer i understand that i'm viewing this on my own etc and then if we have to go through another level of verification that's fine i have no problem with that and i don't think any other content producers would either if pornhub said you know hey we need you to send us a videotape with you and the model that you're filming with, where she explicitly says, or he explicitly says, this piece of boilerplate that we've printed, I consent to these activities, I'm not under duress, this is et cetera. If we had to send them that, fine, 
I will do that tomorrow. Other content producers would do that tomorrow if it means that we wouldn't have to fear waking up in the morning for all of our content to be taken down. So, yeah, I've reached out to Pornhub like always. Um, by the way, when I heard back from them last time, the representative that I spoke to said, there can't be crying in your videos. You can search the terms and conditions of Pornhub's content policy all you want. You will not see no crying. There are lots of no's. Crying is not one of them. If you search for crying on Pornhub, you get about 10,000 results. Their tag cloud suggests crying under many different settings. So this is something they allow on their site. This is something that is part of a genre. This is something that gets some people off, men and women. This is not a misogynistic thing. It truly isn't. I know a lot of women that are very into this. It's their kink. And you guys have got to stop, you know, assuming that any sort of rough porn is inherently misogynistic. That's not true. Is there misogynistic porn? Yes. Is there a lot of it? Absolutely. Is most porn made for a male gaze? Yes. Though all that stuff is true. That doesn't mean that there aren't women who enjoy this content. That doesn't mean that everyone who is making this content has a misogynistic viewpoint. I certainly do not. And I work with people that this is what they find exciting and fulfilling. No one's forcing them. They want to do this. So there's my little rant. Uh, we'll get on to some less difficult stuff for a little bit here. Someone had asked me, in a private message recently, you know, how did you get into the BDSM lifestyle? How did you get into the kink community? How did you get your start in that? What would you recommend for me to get into this? And that's, it's really difficult, right? Cause I am an older generation and that I grew up before the internet. I grew up before all the social media and online access to this Pornhub, obviously. And so growing up, I didn't know what kink was. I didn't know what BDSM was. I had never heard those words. I don't think I had seen any depictions of kinky sex or BDSM sex. Probably the first time I saw something that was, you know, would be considered kinky sex would be like Pulp Fiction, right? I think that was a lot of people's first look at, oh, what is going on down here with this person in a leather costume locked in a trunk, right? And I know that in that movie, obviously, it's played for shock value. It's not necessarily a healthy depiction of BDSM. I get that. I'm not advocating that that's a go-to. But I'm saying in my personal experience, that's probably the first time I saw, like, what is that? Like, that's not part of my sexual experience. Now, of course, kink and BDSM has been around for a very long time. You know, the sado and sadomasochism is the Marquis de Sade going back to, I want to say, the 17th century, um, and obviously long before that. Any kind of non-standard outside of the realm of just having sex for procreation, you know, starts to move into kink and starts to move into BDSM, etc. And that's fine. And I think people have always been like that. The Romans clearly had a taste for what you know people would say is sexual perversion or sexual deviation from the norm explicitly if you see the stuff on pompeii that's painted on the walls and, and mosaic on the walls not just graffiti but we're going to make this art installation and it's going to have cocks as far as you can see right they obviously had some non-procreative ideas about sex and sexuality and i would say that as long as humans have been human and as long as we realize that having sex, you know, is a lot of fun and feels really good outside of just having the ability to reproduce, there's been a kinky side to it. There's been a, a deviant side to it. And I mean, deviant is in deviating from the norm, not deviant as something bad. Because when I say a sexual deviation, I know that the initial response to that is, oh, you're saying that all this is bad. No, because this is my life. This is how I've lived my life for quite some time. It just means anything outside of, you know, normal. 
if you're just having sex in the approved positions, you know, missionary position, etc., which is very interesting because that's that's clearly not a common primate position. Um, there are some primates that do have sex facing each other, bonobos, etc. And there's some really interesting um, anthropological studies about, you know, sex for procreation, sex for, you know, fun and enjoyment as well among the primates. But obviously most primates do mount rear style, doggy style, etc. Um, so the the face-to-face missionary, the safe Disney version of sex is a bit of a deviation from nature, but we're not going to rain on people's parade. Yeah. Like any time you get outside of that, I've certainly had partners in my life who sex for them was very cut and dry. You know, it was kind of ritualized routine, very staid, you know, I don't want to say boring. Vanilla sex doesn't have to be boring. Vanilla sex doesn't have to be, you know, non-exciting. Vanilla sex, regular sex, non-deviant sex can be intensely pleasurable and erotic and romantic and exciting. Absolutely. Just like, you know, deviant sexual practices can be extremely boring if the people doing them aren't into it or aren't good at it or aren't interested in their partners, etc., you know, just being in doggy style and just, you know, that is just as boring as any vanilla sex act you can imagine. A lot of it comes from that repressive culture that I spoke to in our last, our last issue. I've written about this a bit. Um, I don't write at very much erotic fiction as much as I write accounts of actual sexual acts. So kind of erotic nonfiction. I've written about this in the past, um, about kind of my understandings and awakenings of these particular kinks in myself. And as I mentioned before, I do not believe you pick your kinks. Your kinks choose you. I don't think anybody wakes up one day and is suddenly into leather, et cetera, or suddenly into feet or, you know, I always use those two as examples, but there's as many different fetishes and kinks as there are people. Um, every day, you know, in this line of work, I find something and I'm like, I didn't know that existed, but good for them. I'm glad that turns them on. I started developing an understanding of my own kinks, the things that turned me on above and beyond just normal sexual attraction, right? Because, you know, red-blooded American boy, was I girl crazy? Absolutely. You know, you know, if I found a woman attractive, that in and of itself turned me on. But that doesn't mean that there was something kinky about that. Most people would call that normal sexual behavior. You know, sexually healthy young adult male sees a sexually healthy young adult female and is attracted to that person. That was kind of, you know, that is very straight line right down the middle of the road, normal sexuality. You know, fortunately in the time since then, we've learned that deviations from that norm same-sex attraction, and a lot of the kinks that we have are also perfectly healthy and perfectly normal. They're not deviant behaviors, as in they deviate so far from the norm that they cause harm. You know, I think it's understood now that same-sex attraction is just same-sex attraction. There's no deviation from normal sexual attraction. There's no deviation from normal mental state. There's no deviation from, I'm just trying to say it's fine. You know, psychologists went from this is a bad thing, this is a problem that we can fix, and then psychologists realized, hey, you know what? These people are perfectly healthy, they're perfectly mentally sound, they're just attracted to the same sex or both sexes or no sex at all. That doesn't fundamentally mean they're mentally unstable. You know, there's plenty of crazy straight people, there's plenty of crazy gay people too, but that has nothing to do with their orientation, that has to do with who they are. So for me, Um, yeah, it was just kind of a gradual awakening. I cannot point to a single moment where I saw something or thought something or had an experience where it was like, oh, now I'm kinky. It was just subtle things. It was literally very subtle things in my sex life. Um, you know, this is, it's kind of a funny story. My first experience with restraints in sex, with tying somebody up in sex, was purely practical. 
Like I didn't understand it was a kinky thing to restrain somebody in sex. I had a partner who, when she got very close to orgasm, would kind of spasm uncontrollably. And I wouldn't, I wasn't able to push her over the edge to orgasm because she would move around too much, literally. And so, you know, being the practical fellow that I am, I thought, oh, well, I will simply tie her down to the bed, you know, legs and arms, so she cannot get away, and then we can get her to orgasm. This is consensual, mind you. I didn't hold her down and tie her down. I was like, I want to try tying you down. And she said, that sounds like fun. Let's try that. Maybe that will work. Um, it did work, actually. I was able to get her to orgasm that way. But the tying up itself didn't necessarily turn me on any more than regular sex. Like that wasn't, oh, this is taboo because I didn't realize it wasn't taboo. To me, it was literally a practical measure to keep my partner from moving around so much that I couldn't perform on them to get them to orgasm. You know, very practical. I had another situation where I was with a partner and we were in a house with several other people and we were having sex and we were getting kind of loud. She was getting kind of loud. And I had, you know, I, I'm sh this is a long time ago. I'm sure I had whispered something like be quiet or, you know, shh. And she was still making a lot of noise. And so I put my hand over her mouth, you know, again, a practical thing. It wasn't a power thing. It wasn't a, I'm going to do this on purpose to make you feel controlled. And I want to control you. It was literally a practical, we're making too much noise. I'm going to make you quieter with my hand. Um, it turned out that turned her on a lot. She also at the time didn't understand, you know, these kind of kinks. We were, we're pretty young. Um, but she told me afterwards specifically, you know, it really turned me on when you covered my mouth like that. That really worked for me. I'd like to do more of that. And you know, I was fine with that. That did become part of our sexual practice. And we did experiment with other things. But for me, again, it was a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, while I tied up one of my partners for practical reasons, I didn't tie up another partner until I was specifically asked to by a partner a decade later. Like tying up in and of itself isn't one of my kinks. It doesn't turn me on necessarily to tie somebody up. I, I definitely have my own kinks, but that's not one of them. Do I enjoy it as an art form? Sure. You know, I've, I've done shibari. I've done rope tying. I often use restraints in BDSM contexts, but they're practical for me. It doesn't turn me on just to see someone in restraints. That's not my kink. And that's kind of what a kink is. is so someone will have two pictures side by side. In one picture, the model has their hands behind their back. And in the other picture, the model has their hands behind their back and tied. If you look at those two pictures and the one that's tied really turns you on, that's a kink, right? That's kind of the definition of how kinks work. There's something about that picture. There's something about the evocative nature of being bound in and of itself that is sexually appealing to you and turns you on. That's a kink. And it doesn't matter if it's thigh-high leather boots or fishnets or a particular type of garment or a particular type of sex position. You know, if there's something out there that really turns you on to a fetishistic level, right? Not just a little bit. Not like, oh, yeah, I kind of like blue bathing suits over red. You don't have a kink for blue bathing suits. But if one-piece bathing suits really turn you on and all other bathing suits are just kind of meh, then yeah, you probably have a kink for one pieces. That's me, by the way. Um, you know, why? Does it make any sense? No. And you can't or shouldn't. It's not really useful to try and figure out why those kinks exist. You know, why do I like one piece bathing suits so much? No idea. Truly. You know, the same model in a two piece is not as sexy to me. It doesn't turn me on. It doesn't really get me going. But put that model in a one piece and I am... I am there. Who knows? I don't know. And it's not important to know. I accept that as one of my kinks and I enjoy it. You know, that's part of it is not trying to fight against your kinks. Just accept who you are. Accept that, oh, I didn't realize I was into bondage, but I see these pictures and they really turn me on. I guess I have a kink for bondage. Go with it. Enjoy it. 
explore it. Be part of that community. Don't, you know, go hide in a corner and feel like, oh, I'm a terrible human being because I like to see people tied up. Don't overanalyze it in yourself. You know, oh, I have some repressed memories of my grandfather. No, it's just a kink. It's just a kink. Are there sexual, you know, psychoses? Are there things evolved with sex that are clinically bad for people? Sure, you know, but we very much over diagnose as a society, you know, oh, well, this person likes to have sex. He must have, you know, a sex addiction. He must be addicted to sex is so ridiculous because having sex is a primary fundamental human compulsion, you know, food, shelter, procreation, like those are the hierarchy of needs. There's a reason that it's up there. You wouldn't be here as a species if we didn't really like to have sex. So anybody that expresses a higher than normal, normal sexual desire, oh, that's a nymphomaniac or that person has a sex addiction. They might. There certainly are people that have sex addictions. I'm not downplaying that. But I'd say it's about maybe a tenth of what we as a society call out. Oh, that person has a sex addiction. No, they don't. That's, that's ridiculous. They're a normal, healthy sexual adult that's not repressed like you are, perhaps. Not you, my audience. I love you all. When I really understood what kink was, when I really understood that, oh, this is more than just, you know, the little odd thing we do during sex, you know, tying up or hand over the mouth, etc. I was in the Air Force. I was in California. Um... And I met someone out there and she was in the kink scene. So the kink scene has been around forever. But if you grow up in the Midwest, if you grow up in small town, if you grow up, you know, you can be in a mid-sized city, but still not be plugged into the kink scene, especially before the internet. If you didn't kind of know somebody that was into it, then how are you going to find it? Just walk around the street corners, ask people if they're kinky. Like some of y'all don't remember what it was like before the internet, but it's a completely different world. You know, I can go online right now and access a dozen different ways of finding other kinky people in my area. Easy. You know, FetLife, Kinkster, Fetter, there's dating sites that are geared to kink. There are, go online and look for kink community and it'll have, you know, easy breakdowns of other people in your area of a like-minded bent. In 1996, it simply didn't exist. You know, there might have been a newsletter, maybe, I don't know. I'm not a historian of kink culture, but I can tell you that just being kinky and trying to find other kinky people is, you know, ships passing in the night. You may meet somebody and have a great conversation with them, but kink's not going to come up. So yeah, it was, it was a much different world anyway. I happened to meet somebody that was in the kink scene. You know, she was a full-on member of the kink community and took me to my first, you know, kind of kink party. And I remember when I walked in, that was my moment of realization. That was my moment of, oh, there's a whole world, there's a whole community, there's a whole galaxy of different fetishes and subcultures in this that I had no idea existed. You know, now I can go back and I can see, you know, Betty Page was doing very kinky stuff in the 50s. And it's not like it was anything new back then. But it was certainly part of a subculture, sub-subculture. It was not mainstream. It was not necessarily well-received in the mainstream communities. And so for a very, very long time, it was a tiny, very insular world of people that were actually in the kink community. And then the internet happened and that changed everything. I mean, obviously it's changed every sector of our lives, but the way we interact socially obviously has taken a light year step from where we were before the internet. So again, you know, right around 1996, 99, that time period, the internet's really taking off and gaining steam. And the first thing people do is they start creating communities and they start reaching out to like-minded people and the community grows. And with that growth come a lot of problematic things. 
you know, if you're in the, if you were in the kink scene in the nineties, you wouldn't necessarily just bring in someone you didn't think was a good person to your little group of friends to hang out. Right. There was kind of a gatekeeping, a positive gatekeeping in that if you knew some guy that was a real jerk, you wouldn't necessarily invite him over to your little kink party to meet your kinky friends. It was a very self-selecting group. So when my partner brought me into that community, she brought me in trusting me to behave well because she was kind of, when she brought me to that party, she was saying, you know, I vouch for this person. He's all right. And that's something that we are sorely lacking now as a kink community. And anybody that's ever attended an open kink event will know that, you know, anybody can come. Anybody that finds it online can show up at the bar that's on kink night or can show up at the lunch munch or can show up at the rope learning party, etc. And there's a lot of bad actors, unfortunately. Um, you do have to be very careful as a new person coming into kink, especially I've seen this myself, that there's a whole class of people, uh, men and women alike, mostly men in this situation that hover around the periphery of the kink scene, looking for new people, looking for people that are inexperienced, that don't know what they're doing, that are easy targets, just like any other predatory behavior right? These are the same guys that are at the bar that are looking for the person that's a little too intoxicated, right? An easy target. These are not good people and they're not good people in the regular vanilla world and they're not good people in the kink world. And there are very abusive, very bad people in our little world. Clearly, I'm not saying that everybody is. I would say the vast majority are not. The vast majority are good-hearted, people that just want to have a good time and celebrate their kink with like-minded people, right? That is the bulk of the kink community that I know, you know, a little nerdier than most tend to be. And that's fine. Um, a little socially awkward. Sure. But by and large, they're good people by and large. They're people that I would point out as good examples of humanity. Unfortunately, because of the nature of kink relationships, because of the nature of BDSM in general, it's a great place if you are an abusive person, right? That's the danger. Because the difference between healthy, kinky relationships and unhealthy, abusive relationships is consent. If someone consents to being ordered around, and, you know, spanked for misdeeds, etc. If they consent to that, that's fine. That's perfectly healthy. If that turns them on and makes them feel cared for and fulfilled, like it does for my subs specifically, and they consent to that, they seek that out. That's perfectly healthy. And a lot of people will frown on that and say, you know, that can't be healthy. You know, you're a grown woman and you're letting this person boss you around. Why would you do that? Because it feels good to them, right? because they've chosen it. I'm not forcing it upon them. They want to be able to let go and let someone else be in control. That f makes them feel warm and safe and protected and cared for. And it's very exciting at a deep fundamental level for them. That is their thing. And I'm happy to provide that in a consensual setting. The problem is, is that when you have someone that is new to the scene and sees this behavior and just understands, oh, well, this is how it works. And they fall in with someone who is abusive, who is selfish and is not looking out for the needs of their sub, then that can get toxic really quickly. Then that can be a bad thing. Then that can, you know, and I've seen it more times than I wish I could say, you know, a young person gets involved in the scene. They fall in with someone who is happy to take them under their wing and teach them. And it ends up being an abusive relationship. And that person is either, you know, heavily emotionally damaged from that, sometimes permanently emotionally damaged from that, and leaves the scene, never wants to have anything to do with the scene again. Or 
they kind of move from bad situation to bad situation because they don't necessarily know what to seek out in a healthy BDSM relationship. The stamp that they got when they walked in the door said, oh, well, this is an acceptable behavior. It's acceptable for my dominant partner to do this to me, even though I don't want it to be done because that's just what we do. No. And some kink communities are really moving forward with education. I know that there's some kink communities that are working really hard on like having beginners courses that are taught by respected members of the community that say, hey, you know, this is the difference between abuse and consent. This is the difference between a healthy and unhealthy kink relationship. And I applaud that. I really think that we need to take very good care of each other. Because what we do is not only, you know, dangerous on an emotional level, but sometimes what we do is very dangerous physically. And it's not something that you just do because it looks like fun. People can get hurt for real. They can get hurt emotionally, mentally, and physically doing normal kink things. So education is great. You know, education is a key part of becoming a better subservient person and a better dominant person. I've kind of strayed from my point a little bit, but I can because it's my podcast. Bringing that back around to how would I recommend someone who's new to the kink scene getting into the kink scene? Well, finding people is easy. Um, FetLife is a good resource. There is, you do have to be careful on FetLife, right? If you're a pretty young woman and you put a FetLife profile up, you are going to get inundated with, you know, come ons from doms. Anybody can call themselves a dom people. Doesn't mean they're a dominant person who are happy to usher you in the door. Be wary of those, right? Good doms. Okay. This is going to sound super self-serving, but I can back this up easily. Good doms are busy. It's as simple as that. If you're a good dominant, if you have a reputation as a good dominant, if you treat your subs well in a way that they enjoy, in a way that fulfills them and doesn't make them feel bad, you will be busy. Because when you're good at something, people seek you out versus you seeking people out. I've never sought out a sub. I've never gone online trolling for new people looking for a sub. I'm always too busy. I, I'm currently full up. I could not take on another subservient partner in good conscience because I could not devote the time and attention to them that they would need to have a healthy BDSM relationship with me. And it's been that way almost consistently for the last 10 years. So good doms aren't out there messaging newcomers on FetLife. It's as simple as that. If you sign on to FetLife and someone pops up in your DMs and says, hey, I'm an experienced Dom and I want to take you on and show you the ropes, etc. That's a warning sign. It, it is. It's a simple warning sign. You know, look at it like karate studios, right? What was the last time a karate teacher came and knocked on your door and said, hey, I just started a new karate studio and I'm taking on students. No, people seek out them. They don't go door to door. If they did go door to door, I'd be very concerned about their reputation. I'd, I'd want to know why are they looking for students? What's wrong? If they're an experienced teacher, why are they having such a hard time finding new students? Well, the teacher-student relationship and the dom-sub relationship are meshed, right? If someone is truly an experienced dom, they are a good dom. They are someone that, you know, has a good reputation. They're not out seeking new subs. The dom-to-sub ratio is such that good doms are busy. Prove me wrong. Please. Um, so be very wary of that. If, if you're a sub and a dom approaches you, I think that's not a good sign. I think that's a, 
I cannot say it's a universally bad sign. I'm sure that good dom-sub relationships have happened, where the dom walked up to the sub and said, hi, I'd like to take you under my wing. I'm certain that has happened. In my experience, it's rare. It's rare and it's, again, you know, I'm busy. I've been busy for 10 years. Good doms that I know are also busy. They're not out there trolling for new people, right? I don't necessarily even have a lot of interest in a new, brand new sub. It's a lot of work, right? I'd rather work with more experienced subs. We can do more advanced things. We can kind of jumpstart that relationship and go right up to higher levels versus Dom 101, Sub 101. So yeah, be wary of that as a new person, as you're coming in as a new sub. So what do you do if you're a new Dom, right? You're patient, you know, you're patient and you're humble. You take time to learn. You take time to educate yourself. And you do have to educate yourself. There's not a finishing school somewhere that's going to teach you how to be a good dom. You know, if you're new to the community, if you've just found out about this and you want to join, you want to be part of this exciting thing, you know, FetLife is a good start. There are other ways to get into it. But say, let's go with FetLife. You put in your city and your town and your state and you'll get a community board and it'll say these are the events happening. Public BDSM events can be very mixed. Um, I don't personally spend a lot of time at them. And that's just because, again, I'm very busy. I tend to play one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one small household stuff and I don't tend to play in groups. Katja, on the other hand, has, through most of her BDSM life, her experience goes back even further than mine, though we, we got in the scene about the same time. She's usually played in a more public role. She's usually had a group of friends that were very kinky, and they would organize retreats, and they would go to a ski lodge somewhere and have a kinky weekend, or they would go to a you know another country. These are rather expensive trips. Um... But she had a, you know, a group of people that were all like-minded and enjoyed each other's company. And that was a very fun and productive lifestyle for her. And it was a very public lifestyle for her. I've had a very different BDSM career where almost everything I've ever done has been one-on-one. -on -one. Small group, small household, not a lot of social interaction. It's just the way I prefer to play. I have attended public stuff, though. And, you know, for me, um, sometimes it can be fun. I've certainly gone to BDSM parties and kink parties that were very exciting and very fun. I've been to the occasional, you know, informal public gathering, like a munch. A munch is just a group of kinky people meets at a Denny's on Sunday at noon, right? And ostensibly, you're all there in a non-kink capacity, but you all have kind of a... You know, it's like people that collect stamps going out to eat together because they have a common interest. Well, our common interest is kink or BDSM, etc. Those can be mixed. You could fall in with a really great group of people that, you know, know and like each other and are close-knit and look out for each other. Or you can, you know, go to one of these and it's just a real mixed bag of a couple loners, a couple people that are just finding out about the scene, a couple couples that you know, may or may not have a good relationship dynamic, you're, you're rolling the dice. And sometimes you have to do that to get in the door. You know, you show up at one of these gatherings and there's 12 people there and 11 of them are not to your liking. You know, 11 people there you don't want to hang out with, you never want to see again as far as you're concerned. That's normal. But go into any coffee shop and your odds are about the same, right? But there might be one person there might be someone there that you click with, whether it's, you know, dom to sub, sub to dom, sub to sub, dom to dom, you know, whatever that relationship is, you, you might click and you're not going to find out if you don't try it. So, and you may have to go several times because, you know, the population is going to turn over every week, 
there's going to be regulars and then there's going to be new people coming in and out and long timers that took a week off, for example. So go to a couple of the weekly meetings, go to a couple of the public, you know, I would avoid going one-on-one to somebody's house, just like you would in dating. The same safety protocols you would use in dating apply here only a bit more so because sometimes what we do is very dangerous. I wouldn't have your first kink event to be at somebody's house. You know, even if they say it's a party, that's sketchy to me. I'd have your first kink event be in a public setting, you know, a coffee house or a diner or a restaurant or some sort of public gathering. Once we're over this COVID thing, that would be safer. And then you can get to know people and you can meet people and you can say, oh, I really like this couple. They're really cool. I, you know, have a liking to them. I feel a connection with them and they like me or she likes me or he likes me, etc. You know, the same way you would form connections anywhere else in the world. And then slowly build those trust relationships so that, yeah, you know, a month down the road, if that nice couple invites you over for dinner you feel safe about it and that's fine. Or you meet somebody and you start to date, you know, kind of BDSM date. That's fine. You do have to get out there. Be wary of, you know, you get online and you find somebody halfway across the country that really wants to meet you, etc. That can be dangerous. You know, especially this can be a very predatory environment for some people. Some people take advantage of the subservient nature to abuse those people. So I'm, I'm talking mostly to subs here. Have your guard up. Talk to other people in your community that have been in a while and can say, oh, hey, you know what? That guy is no good. He's bad news. I had this experience with him. You know, I wanted him to stop and he wouldn't stop. And as bold face as that sounds, as, you know, on the nose, it happens all the time. I talk to people all the time in BDSM communities and they'll say, you know, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I'll say, oh yeah, I've, I've met him a couple times. And they'll say, well, let me tell you. And they'll tell me this horror story about how this person treated them badly. Now, mind you, this is just because people are kinky doesn't mean they're not people. And sometimes people like to gossip. Sometimes people like to rumor mill. Sometimes people like to exaggerate. Sometimes people like to make stuff up out of whole cloth. Am I saying, you know, don't take it seriously? No, not at all. Take it seriously. People don't get bad reputations by accident. You know, if someone tells you, hey, I used my safe word and he didn't listen, that is a giant red flag. I would recommend not playing with that person unless you had it on very good authority that there was a misunderstanding or a mistake or a very, you know, it would have to be pretty clear to me that we had this misunderstanding and this is what happened. This is my side of it, et cetera. But man, abusers don't feel like they're abusing. Abusers always see their conduct as, you know, perfectly legitimate. So I would have to hear from someone else that person was with. I would have to hear from several other people, honestly. Once someone has that reputation, it's something that follows. And what will happen is, is that people will drop off of FetLife and pop right back up with a whole new username, whole new persona, and be right out there again. And because it is kind of an insular community, because it is kind of a sometimes very one-on-one nature, abusive people can get away with it for a very long time. The fact that we don't tend to believe people when they give us bad reports about other people, you know, especially when women are, you know, giving bad reports on men, we tend to not believe that. It can be very difficult. Ask around. Be safe. Make sure that you are not putting yourself in a position where you might get abused. And if you feel like you're being abused, reach out for help immediately. You know, find someone in your community that you feel is trustworthy that has more experience than you do and say, Hey, you know, I was doing this thing with my Dom and it didn't, I didn't like it. And he said that I had to do it anyway, et cetera. Um, talk to people, find out if that's okay. Find out if it's normal, find out if it's, you know, you're just not understanding how BDSM works. But I would say just in general, if you find yourself in a situation where you know, if someone's trying to get you to do something you don't want to do 
or doesn't excite you and isn't fun for you, isn't what you signed up for, pack up and leave. Get out of that situation. You, as a subservient, even the best subservient person in the world is still responsible for their own safety and well-being. And they have to recognize when they're in a bad situation and say, okay, um, this isn't what I signed up for. It's not what I want. This is not fulfilling me. It's not making me happy. This person's not taking care of me and I'm out. And this is, you know, I'm talking to the kink community, of course, but this is absolutely, you know, to think that this doesn't happen in the vanilla world would be foolishness. These kind of bad relationships happen every day in the vanilla world. You know, it's certainly not a kink isolated thing. I don't see any more abusive relationships in the kink world than I do in the vanilla world. Proportionately, I'd say it's about the same. But that means that there's too many abusive relationships in the vanilla world, really, right? They should be the, the vast minority of relationships. And unfortunately, they're not. It's all too common in the vanilla world for people to be in bad or abusive relationships. And the BDSM world is just a smaller version of the real world. So all those statistics scale down. If 20% of people in the vanilla world are in bad relationships, I'd say 20% of the kink world is as well. That's what I'm talking about as far as ratio. I certainly haven't seen it be more abusive. If anything, the fact that we very much focus on consent, we very much focus on that kind of sexual well-being, talking about our feelings and welfare and sexual health, etc. We're very open about that in the BDSM world. And so, if anything, I would like to think that we're more proactive about abuse. It still happens, and it's a, it's a bad thing. So, you found out about kink, you want to get involved in it. Find a local group and public meetings. Find people you like. Find people that you feel comfortable with. You know, that's how you start. It would, just like any other social gathering, you know. And if one group of people isn't to your liking, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You know, go find another group. Look around a little bit. You may have to travel a little bit sometimes. If you live in a small town, you know, there may only be one group and that's what you got. If you live in a bigger, more metropolitan area, there will be many groups of people and you can, you know, bounce around a little bit. Find out where you fit in. There's no need to rush into it. There's no need to rush into a relationship or a group of people, or an activity that you're not comfortable with. If you see someone doing rope tying, and that interests you, and you want to talk about, you know, maybe getting tied up yourself, you know, that's fine. Have that conversation. Say, I've never done this before. You know, what do I need to know? You know, what about safety, etc. That's fine. You know, have that conversation with whoever you're going to trust to tie you up. Because um, that can be a dangerous occupation. You can get hurt, especially if suspension is involved. Um, but yeah, so just like any social group you wanted to get into, if you wanted to be in bowling, right? You saw a bowling documentary and now that looks like fun. You go down to one local bowling lane and it's not to your liking. There's nobody there that you really click with. You went on a couple different nights. You checked out their league night, etc. And it just wasn't for you. I would recommend trying another bowling alley. You know, go to the other side of town and try that one. And you might find a like-minded group of people. Or you might not. There's a lot of chance involved in this. The BDSM world's the same way. You know, you might be lucky and your local group is full of cool people and you fit right in and you're off to the races or you go there and you don't like anybody and you don't feel comfortable and you don't feel, you know, like you want to hang out, trust those instincts and go somewhere else. This is normally the part where I would read the mailbag. The problem is, is our most recent videos got pulled and I didn't save enough comments prior to them being pulled, and I no longer have access to those. So we're going to skip the mailbag this week. You guys can thank Pornhub for that. As always, I welcome your questions and your comments. Write to me here at Pornhub by direct message. You can email me. 
You can Instagram message me. You can Twitter message me. Any way you want to reach out, please do. Whatever feels comfortable for you. If you want to ask something privately and you don't want it, you know, shared with the rest of the community, just let me know. If you want to ask a question to be read, that's fine. Let me know if you want me to keep your profile information, you know, separate. If you make a comment under one of our videos, then it's fair game. But if you contact me privately, I won't put out any identifying information about you unless you specifically say it's okay. Um, yeah, it has been kind of a struggle. We're doing okay. Until next week, stay safe, push the envelope, don't break it, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>